Many Koreans believe that this is their country's century. They've been proving it as South Korea has emerged as an economic powerhouse, manufacturing affordable and futuristic technology. They're also famous for producing a heavy layer of pop culture designed for export. It's the entire package that Korea is using to present itself to the world in an attempt to create a national PR campaign. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Yuni Hong unveils how South Korea Cool is being marketed to the world. They're also the first country to demonstrate that cool can actually be manufactured with effort. Plus, guides from Portugal propose an ideal one-week itinerary for enjoying their delightful country. Porto is very known by the very beautiful river and, of course, the port wine. Very good cheese, very good bread, very good wine. Let's get away. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Since good things often come in small packages, we're exploring a couple of countries that are small in size, but big on what they deliver on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll get itinerary advice for a week's vacation in Portugal with the insider's help of a pair of local tour guides a little later in the hour. But let's start with a look at the global powerhouse South Korea has become, thanks to heavy investments in some savvy marketing. South Korea has turned into one of the top economies in the world in barely a generation. And now, Korean business and political leaders are taking it one step further by investing huge amounts of money in packaging everything from boy bands to soap operas to the world's leading smartphones. Korean leaders hope to spread the Korean brand all around the world through its pop culture. And with more than 2 billion views of the YouTube sensation Gangnam Style, it looks like they're onto something. When Yuni Hong was 12 years old, her parents decided to move the family from Chicago back to Korea, where they were born. They moved into the same wealthy Gangnam neighborhood in Seoul that the song satirizes. Yuni eventually returned to the United States, but with a new respect and understanding for today's South Korea. Yuni explains what's behind Korea's global marketing and image campaign in her gutsy book. It's called The Birth of Korean Cool. How One Nation is Conquering the World Through Pop Culture. Yuni, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Rick. This is quite a phenomenon, but uh, that's also quite a statement, how one nation is conquering the world through pop culture. How so? What do you mean by that? Well, this is not a small feat. First of all, no non-English-speaking country has ever attempted to compete with the United States in the pop culture wars. Korea is a country of something like 60, 70 million people And it speaks a language that is not spoken outside its borders. So not only are they the first country to attempt this, they're also the first country to demonstrate that cool can actually be manufactured with effort and money, which is sort Mm -hmm. of the opposite of what we normally think of as being cool, as effortless. That's right. It's a calculated and invested cool. Is it mostly done in English language, would you say? This is one of the interesting things about it is that they've kept very faithful to keeping... Well, the dramas are certainly all in Korean. The pop songs are in Korean, but with English refrains and choruses, you know, a lot of the yeah, baby mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. And that's always in English. That's kind of just an homage to the genre. <laughs> but um, yeah, what's interesting is that they have kept it in, in Korean and yeah. there has not been any demand really for that to change, except I would say in the world of cinema, right. which requires a whole nother level of financing. So in order to get backing, uh, what you're seeing a lot more is Korean-produced movies, but with American stars in English, like Ah. Snowpiercer, 
which was a very highly regarded dystopic movie that came out last year by the director Bong Joon-ho. It had Chris Evans in it and Ed Harris. And, you know, that's a great example of what we're going to see a lot more of in the future. It's a Korean production. One of the lead actors is Korean, but most of the cast is English speaking. Mm -hmm. It was financed in part by the Korean Ministry of Culture and the Korean Venture Investment Corporation, which is actually also government financed. It's a fund of funds to the tune of $1.5 billion, with a B, $1.5 billion that is devoted entirely to financing pop culture products. Now, I want to talk about the government push for this in a moment. But first, I want to sort of lay the groundwork. Exactly what is Korean cool? What are some good examples of that? Right. Korean cool encompasses food, film, fashion, television dramas, K-pop songs, and even things like uh, breakdancing. It's the entire package that Korea is using to present itself to the world in an attempt to create a national PR campaign. Hmm. And the end goal is not necessarily to have all these viral videos of K-pop songs, although that's obviously great. The Mm -hmm. end goal is to create an image of Korean cool, which, like American cool of the 20th century... Korean cool of the 21st century is meant to ensure that people buy Korean products long past the time that they've forgotten about Psy, long past the popularity of Korean pop music or Korean dramas. It's about a national branding campaign. So it really is branding. I was going to say it's it's about building a brand and you've got 70 million people that are going to be producing stuff and just from a buy a car, buy a mobile phone, buy a by what, whatever. It, if it's Korean, it's cool. And that's worth a lot of money outside of silly pop culture. So this is sort of a marketing campaign. When we think of the impact of this movement of Korean cool and so on, is the impact in the Pacific Rim greater than we realize because we, we're farther away here in the United States? Absolutely. Korea is basically the Marlboro Man of Asia. And anyone who's visited, particularly Southeast Asia, Thailand, Taiwan, Hong Kong, or even mainland China or Japan, you know, you see posters on the walls of major Japanese products that are, and they're being advertised by Korean stars. And I'll give you a specific example. In Thailand, there was a TV ad that ran last year for Lipton iced tea. And the premise of the ad is that a Thai guy is trying to impress a girl, you know, without success, then he drinks the iced tea and Lipton iced tea makes him cool suddenly. And how does he show this? He suddenly can speak Korean. Wow. This is completely out of context. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the setting. It has nothing to do with Lipton iced tea. It's just sort of like, I don't know, the American equivalent would be a guy who right. can suddenly speak French. Or I don't even know. And, and, and it works. Yuni Hong split her youth between Chicago and Seoul. And she's our guide to the powerhouse that South Korea has become right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her book, The Birth of Korean Cool, is published by Picador. And Yuni updates her speaking schedule at unihong.com. That's spelled E-U-N-Y-H-O-N-G dot com. A lot of us, the only thing we know about Korean cool is the Gangnam style uh, video. When you look at that video, is that a sort of a typical representation of what all this cool is, is about, the music and the, and the fashion? Does that sort of sum it up in a kind of an honest way or a straight way? Well, the Gangnam video was the exception that proves the rule. Psy is not the ambassador that Korea wanted Hmm. to put the face of 
Korean pop music on the map. Ah. Um, He was very much an outlier in many ways. One, he did not rise through the K-pop factory system. He's a little bit too old. He's the wrong body type. He has never had cosmetic surgery. And he's a singer-songwriter, which, believe it or not, is extremely rare in the world of K-pop. Usually the bands are prefabricated and the songs are written by somebody else and Psy did everything himself. And so, I mean, he was very famous in Korea, but sort of as this kind of embarrassment, you know, not taken seriously at all. And when I saw his video, um, people obviously kept sending this to me because I I grew up in Gangnam, actually, which is the, the area of Seoul that Gangnam style is about. And I was a little bit embarrassed by it. I think a lot of Koreans were. It's kind of the Beverly Hills of Seoul, isn't it? A a district called Gangnam. Not only is it the Beverly Hills of Seoul, but there is a shopping street called Rodeo Drive. Oh, okay. There you go. So, yes. This is interesting because I was always, when I was a kid, the monkeys were created by by people that wanted to sell a TV show. And I just thought they are the opposite of the Beatles, who are really creative. Is K-pop that kind of a commodified culture? And there's actually a, a department in the government that breeds and designs and encourages the cosmetic surgery and chooses the body types of what's going to be the pop brand of Korea? (laughs) It's not quite the science fiction dystopia as the government's test tubing all these pop stars, although it seems like that at times. I mean, the government plays an extremely important role in creating an ecosystem so that all of this can exist, and they finance pop culture when necessary. So, for example, when K-pop music suffered economic losses because of piracy a couple of years ago, this is a worldwide phenomenon. But as far as I know, Korea is the only country in the world to respond to piracy by financing, by bailing out the Hmm. record industry in the same way that the United States government bailed out Goldman Sachs during the financial crisis. Korea is the only country that would actually have a government bailout of pop culture. So in that sense, yes, the government's role is instrumental. However, Hmm. the machine itself exists, obviously, because of private industry. But in Korea, you can never talk about private industry separate from government. They always work together. I like to say it's the only, Korea is the only capitalist liberal democracy in the world that can, when necessary, operate as a command economy. A lot of Pacific Rim societies, it seems to me, have a government that can come in and and stoke the economy or stoke their mission with uh, something that's not quite uh, kosher as far as we would think in a free democratic society, Uh, but they still maintain a a, a reasonable democracy. Oh, absolutely. And the government does not require controlling interest or shares in the companies in exchange for this helping hand. Yuni, uh, it's curious to me, would you characterize um, Korean cool? Is it Is it all low culture or is it high culture as well as low culture? Well, that's a really excellent question because Korea does have separate uh, financing, government financing for things like the ballet, opera, and so forth. This is a completely different budget. These are not supported for export. Yeah, This is a country that, unlike the United States, their export model is completely different from its internal model. It's just crass marketing. Yes, it's Coca-Cola. It's, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yuni, the striking thing to me when I think of Korea is the remarkable change in the economics. I mean, when I was a kid, Korea was a desperately poor country living with a dictatorship, and now it's one of the most powerful economies in the world. Give us a review of the the change that's happened in your lifetime economically and and politically in Korea. 
Right. I mean, as you say, uh, after the Korean War, which ended, it was, which was from 1950 to 1953, South Korea was poorer than most of South Saharan Africa. Now it is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and Seoul looks like the capital city in the Hunger Games movie. It's completely futuristic. When I moved to Korea, I was actually born in the U.S. My family did kind of a reverse immigration. We moved to Korea in 1985. So at that time, Korea was right in the middle of becoming a first world country. So I was only in Korea for about six years total from age 12 to 18. And yet during this brief time, I really saw actual leapfrogging from third world to first world. And it, it was incredibly disruptive and violent, you know, literally and spiritually and emotionally, and miraculous. One reviewer called The Birth of Korean Cool fabulously snarky. Yuni Hong has also written The Power of Nunchi about a Korean system of nonverbal social skills. She's our guest from the studios of WGBH Boston in an interview from our Travel with Rick Steves archives. Besides living in the U.S. and South Korea, Yuni's also lived and worked in Germany and France. We have a link to an article she wrote for Politico last year on how she says Americans are ruining the annual Eurovision Song Contest. You'll find it with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. There's more on South Korea as a global trendsetter in just a minute. A little later, guides from Portugal offered their ideas for planning the perfect week in their beautiful country. We're at 877-333-RICK, or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Yuni Hong's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves as she shows us more of the modern marvel of South Korea and the birth of Korean cool. Before the break, we were comparing how far South Korea has emerged economically from the third world in barely a generation. Yuni, what's the magic formula? How much does the government steer the economy, and how much might be a result of a Korean personality and mindset? I've heard that there's something they call Han that plays a role in, in, in the way many Koreans look at life. <laughs> well, it's both of those things. Um, you know, part of it is that the government had some extremely brilliant early planning where they realized they could not count on the free market for the cu- a country that was just destroyed by war, cannot pr- depend on capitalism to rebuild itself. So the Korean government secured foreign loans. And that's how Samsung and Hyundai and what is now called LG became what they are today. You also mentioned Han, and that is the second and also equally important component. Now, Han, which is romanized as H-A-N, is a culturally specific form of rage, which by definition you can only have if you're Korean. Hmm. You can see evidence of Han in a lot of Korean vigilante movies, which are, have become very popular in the West. Chapak Chanuk has the Vengeance trilogy. Old Boy is the most famous of those. That was remade into an American version by Spike Lee last year. So this is a kind of pent-up anger and pain that is uniquely Korean because it's been invaded so many times? Is that the idea? Right. Supposedly, Korea has been invaded 400 times in the last 5,000 years, Hmm. and it has never once unilaterally invaded any other country. And Han is based on the belief that you absorb the agony of millennia. It's like the opposite of karma, you know, in Hindu belief. And that powers Korea. That powers Korea. It motivates them. I mean, it's normal to want to be richer, it's not normal to be number one at all costs. This whole Psy and Gangnam style thing is, is a kind of revenge for being invaded 400 times. 
Exactly. It's a revenge against the world, and also very specifically, it's a revenge against、uh, the Japanese who colonized Korea on and off for a number. Of, well, they inv- they've been enemies for about seven hundred years,、mm-hmm. um, and Korea was a colony of Japan from 1905 to the end of the Second World War. This was a huge chip on the Koreans' shoulder when I was growing up. It still is,、wow. and you see evidence of how important Japan was, or how important defeating Japan was, in a lot of Korean economic success. Well, that's very interesting in this post World War II world of ours. That some of the、uh, the best sort of offenses are economic and pop culture and so on. We can see that with Japan and Germany, and we can see this also with Korea. You can see that with the rise and fall of different cultures as brands in the West. If French or、right. German or American is cool, the British invasion. But to think that Korea is sort of the trendsetter and the envy from a cultural point of view of Southeast Asia, it's fascinating. Now, visually, what is the visual cliche of Korean cool? What would we look at if you were in Thailand or Vietnam or Philippines and somebody was trying to be Korean cool? How would they look? Aesthetically, for men, the look would just be extreme high fashion of the kind that in the West you haven't seen since David Bowie or you know or Elton John. You、mm. know, very loud colors, sort of tight tailored cuts, sort of more of an Italian cut rather than Italian, a baggy, like、English. Italian David Bowie. Yes, Italian David Bowie, perfect. Like, yeah, exactly. If if David Bowie were a Gucci model or、mm. something like that, that's the image. I, I was just wondering about that because from a distance, it's hard to know. And we don't get the brunt of the Korean cool invasion in the United States, I guess yet. But are there ways that Korean cool is affecting me in my American world that I might not even be aware of? Yes, I mean, I would say even Korea would admit that its penetration in the U.S. has been not nearly as strong as anywhere anywhere else, and that's. Quite predictable. America has been pretty self-sufficient in terms of they're making their own pop culture. In fact, it's hard, even with the exception of Downton Abbey,、mm-hmm. it's extremely hard to even get a British TV show or a British movie、hmm. to be super popular here. But Korean cool is still happening here, exactly in ways that you don't realize. I mean, Samsung is still by far is the top-selling、mm-hmm. smartphone, and their microchips are still number one in the world. And in fact, Apple. Which has fifty simultaneous mutual lawsuits against Samsung. Apple uses Samsung microchips. Is Korea doing anything devious to work their way to worm their way into my world through their technological prowess? That's the beauty of marketing: is that you know you watch Mad Men, right?、Mm-hmm. If if you've marketed something successfully,、mm-hmm. you've made the consumer think it was their idea to buy it, right? And that's exactly what's happening. What Korea is working at, as I said, the end game is not to make Korean pop songs be on the Billboard 100. I mean, that would、it's、be to, great, it's but it's to sell Samsung products. It's to sell Samsung products.、All、it's、right. completely unnecessary what, which which form it takes,、uh, and not just Samsung products, but diplomacy、mm-hmm. on a bigger level.、Uh, this is more outside the U.S., but you know, the, Korea is winning the hearts and minds of. Countries where the young people who are listening to K-pop now will grow up, they'll go to the highest levels of government, and if they get if they order a ship contract from Hyundai Shipbuilding, that's a billion dollar contract for one ship. That pays for all、right. the videos. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Yuni Hong. Her book is called The Birth of Korean Cool. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Sue Ann is calling in from Seattle. Sue Ann. I served in the Peace Corps in Korea,、uh, a bit before Yuni Hong was there in 1970 and 71, and went back in 
that was the first time and only time I've been back. So the contrast was quite amazing. It's and a different universe. Yes. <laughs> when I was there in 70 and 71, Korea was, you know, I was in the Peace Corps, and Peace Corps goes to developing countries, and it was definitely a developing country. As you mentioned, struggling to overcome the Japanese occupation, the effects of that, and the Korean War. People were very hardworking, but it was a, a poor economy, and most people didn't have indoor plumbing. Uh, we used outhouses, and there was a lot of charm about it. There was, I mean, not the outhouses necessarily, but mm-hmm. thatched roof houses and uh, very rural. I lived actually in Jeju-do, although I visited Seoul numerous times. And when I went back, I was just amazed with the, the changes, the economy, the prosperity. I had taught middle school girls. I taught English to them. And the ones that I saw when I went back and got together with, there were like seven of them. They're all now very middle-class career women. They could travel, which wasn't common when I was there. It was very hard to travel. Sue Ann, so, even though Koreans are so cool and, and, and influential now all over the Pacific Rim, did you find the welcome was stuck up and cool, or were the people still warm and friendly? Oh, the traditional values just really, you know, with all the changes, it surprised me how much the traditional values of hospitality and generosity and, and the importance of relationships really carried through. So and that persists. Uh, you that need, persists, Do you find yes. that also, Uni, that the, uh, the, the warm and beautiful parts of the culture are resilient? Yes, well, it's funny that you mentioned that, Sue Ann and, and Rick both. That's a matter of exactly what the people are in Korea are debating right now is at what price has this success come? And of course, a lot of people say there has been an erosion of etiquette. And you do see small signs of that. Starbucks was a minor revolution in this. I talk about this in my book, but Traditionally, it is extremely rude to carry around anything that you're eating or drinking. Hmm. Um, Even if you're jogging, you're not really supposed to carry around water. Maybe if you're a small child, you can get away with eating ice cream on the street, but not if your parents are around. Hmm. And Starbucks completely changed that with the introduction of the disposable cup. And this created some problems for me when I had to go to a very important... I was interviewing the people from the Ministry of Education, and I brought my Starbucks cup, and they were all staring at it. And I realized that I had done a terrible, terrible thing. Oh, you're so American. (laughs) I did notice a few people when I was there in 2011 carrying food on the street, which, yeah, was very different than I would have seen before. And I think a lot of my friends and students and the family I lived with that I saw again when I was there, they said that there was a loss of some of the charm of the old Korea. But... That's the question, at what expense? But now their life is so comfortable and prosperous and convenient and uh, comfortable for people. That's large middle class of people. And that's a beautiful thing. They also have, um, over a period of about 12 years, late 70s and through the 80s, they implemented national health insurance. And so they now have a longer life expectancy than the U.S., at a lower cost per person. So it's not just a, a wealth in you know financial and material things, but it's impacted their whole uh, So the whole fabric their whole of their life. culture and their well-being is, is uh, enjoying some benefits from the success of the country's economy. Yes. Right. And crucially, there are even physiological differences as a result of the increase of wealth. I studied World Health Organization statistics on height, 
And Korean height has increased something like four inches on average in the last 30, 40 years. And that's just because nutrition was so terrible after the war. And now, I mean, you can kind of see this in K-pop videos and dramas, Mm. but people who go to Korea for the first time, one of the things that really stands out is that there are a lot of people, well, young people, rather, there are a lot of young people Mm. who are freakishly tall. I have a Korean-American friend who's a guy, and he, went, he said the biggest shock that he had when he went to Korea for the first time is he's six feet tall, and when he, he assumed that when he went to Korea, he'd be towering over anybody. Mm. Absolutely not. There are plenty of people who are taller than he was, and that's something that is extremely recent, sort of this... That is. Uni, that wouldn't have been true when I lived there. Yuni, yeah. would you say that the people in South Korea are, are definitively taller than the people in North Korea today? Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen figures on North Korean height. On that, those are anything coming out of North Korea is unreliable anyway. Mm-hmm. But you know, just anecdotally and based on the mm-hmm. you know refugees and so forth, it's clear that yeah. uh, malnutrition has definitely taken its toll, and right. they are almost not even, frankly, the same race anymore. Sue Ann, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Nice to okay. talk to you. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Yuni Hong. Her book is The Birth of Korean Cool. Yuni. How can I experience Korean cool best, most vividly, when I visit South Korea? Well, uh, that's a funny question because the things that people used to visit as tourists, you know, the palaces and so forth, Korea is no longer really interested in promoting any of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's much more lucrative for them to cater to, well, especially to Asian tourists who want basically the K-pop tour. Mm -hmm. If you want to see Korean cool in this sort of oblique way, I would say, believe it or not, follow the trail of these Japanese organized tour groups by fanatics of Korean dramas. There are a lot of package tours that Japanese, particularly middle-aged Japanese women like to go to, but now Asians everywhere have them, where you just basically follow the path of their favorite drama. This is where this was filmed. This is where that was filmed. This is the birthplace of this fictional character. I mean, I don't know how much you would personally enjoy it as as a fan, but anthropologically, I think you (laughs) would love it. You know, that's something very interesting because I just... I rarely meet anybody from the United States that is going to Korea. And uh, you write in your book that Korea, Seoul, is one of the most visited cities on the planet. It's very popular as a travel destination for Chinese, Japanese, and Thai tourists. Yes, it is. I mean, I'm not entirely sure why. Some of that is, as I said, star tours. Some of that Mm -hmm. is maybe these people are actually hoping to meet a Korean guy Mm. because now Korean guys are considered extremely attractive in Asia. And, of course, a component of that is cosmetic tourism. Meaning what? Um, Meaning that South Korea is now the world's plastic surgery capital. It surpassed Argentina in 2012. And some of this, of course, is driven by the popularity of Korean movie stars and pop singers, where they all have a particular look. And Asians everywhere seem to aspire to this, so they book these plastic surgery tours. Wow. So you said, like yep. you said, Psy was kind of a mistake from a brand-building point of view because it doesn't have the right body type. Uh, so most of the body types would be, in America, you know, a lot of parents are upset about this Barbie doll standard that is being set for our young kids. And in Korea, they're setting this sort of cosmetic surgery standards. Right. It's important to note that the cosmetic trends in Korea are extremely different from the ones in the West. The most popular cosmetic procedures in the United States are breast enlargement and liposuction. And in Korea, the most popular procedure is eyelid uh, surgery. It's actually 
the, technically what they add an epicanthic fold so that the eyes look bigger. Is um, that to look less Asian and more Western? That's a matter of controversy. Obviously, a lot of people are saying this is, you know, body dysmorphia. This is a, a kind of racial reassignment surgery. I strongly disagree with that. Um, I mean, the traditional Korean eye beauty standard based on, you know, ancient poems and songs and so forth, it really is to have bigger eyes. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the surgery has spiked recently, it's not because they suddenly discovered Western beauty. I mean, they've had access to American films for, you know, 70 years. Mm -hmm. It's just, I mean, according to surgeons I talked to, the reason it's happening recently is simply that the technology of cosmetic surgery has advanced such that it's faster Mm -hmm. And most importantly, really cheap. So it's accessible. Um, it's accessible. Yeah, it's accessible. It's an easy way to upgrade yourself. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Yuni Hong. Her book is The Birth of Korean Pool. Yuni, let's just finish off with, with one thought. You are an American Korean. When you look back at your home culture, Korea, apart from K-pop and cosmetic surgery, what do you think is the coolest thing about Korean culture? Well, um, I think that what we're going to see as being the coolest thing from Korean culture is, oddly enough, something that won't sort of have an obvious made-in-Korea stamp on it, and that is that they're developing culture technology, and that's a term I never heard before I was doing research for this book. But culture technology is basically, if you think of what Industrial Light and Magic does or what Pixar does or what Spielberg did for Jurassic Park, that's all culture technology. And Korea is working on, they're basically the country's best scientists and funded by government taxpayer money. They're working on stuff like extremely realistic 3D holograms that you can use for live entertainment. And this might seem like a totally useless thing. But, um, well, the idea is that current hologram technology is 2D. So, you know, when P. Diddy appeared on the American Music Awards as a hologram, he only kind of looked real if you were looking fully frontal at him. If you look at the side, it's just like a, you know, a line of light. And if you look in the back, well, you can't because that's where the projection's coming from. So if you're a young person excited about the pop culture and the future is going to be dominated by little screens, and if you're thankful for that, you can also be thankful for Korea. Absolutely. Yuni Hong, author of The Birth of Korean Cool, thanks so much for a better appreciation of what's going on in, in a very exciting corner of this planet right now, South Korea. Thank you. It was great being on your show. We have links to Yuni Hong and her books, The Birth of Korean Cool, and her latest, The Power of Noonji, the Korean sixth sense for winning friends and influencing people. Look for program number 676 at ricksteves.com slash radio. Our listeners like to travel in all kinds of weather. Here's a few haiku they've sent us about that. Sometimes it only requires a few choice words to send your imagination traveling. Lynn Gurner from Wailuku, Hawaii, sends us this haiku of the scene she observed one afternoon in the Southern California desert. Tall clouds sign thermals. High sun reveals quarries rest to red-shouldered hawk. Sean Bowles of Eugene, Oregon, shares a sailing haiku with us. Wind rising quickly, she scuds down rising roglers. Land 
is far away. And Steve McClary of Las Cruces, New Mexico, sends us this souvenir of summertime in Italy. Tuscany August. Sunflowers turn shy faces for a summer kiss. Great beaches, architecture, people, and prices. Tour guides from Portugal remind us not to overlook their country. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. It's easy to sense how Portugal keeps one foot in its glorious past and the other in the future as you travel around the country. While its wealth and might during the Age of Discovery made Portugal a global power, its membership in the European Union provides advances to its infrastructure today. In traditional economies, fishing, wine, olive oil, textiles, ceramics, and cork are still going strong. I've found Portugal to be one of Western Europe's best values for tourism, especially if you can picture yourself relaxing in a seaside town with a plate of just-caught seafood and a nicely chilled white wine. Portuguese tour guides Fatima Bugarin and Claudia da Costa join us now on Travel with Rick Steves to take your calls and offer their insider advice for planning the perfect week in Portugal. We're at 877-333-7425. Fatima, where would you recommend visitors start out? I would definitely go to Lisbon, Évora, Porto, Douro Valley, uh, Coimbra, and that would cover most of it. Okay, and Claudia, what would you list for a week in Portugal? I also would like to go to south, to the Algarve. I think it's mm-hmm. perfect. So Algarve, uh, Lisbon for sure, mm-hmm. uh, Sintra, Coimbra, and the Douro Valley in Porto. Okay, so let's talk about those places. And this is interesting because I, I think there's a few places that a lot of our listeners might not know or appreciate, and we want to be sure that they appreciate them. First of all, Lisbon's capital city, dominant city. It's as big in Portugal as London would be for England, I think. you got to start in Lisbon. What would, what would you do? What are the critical things to do in Lisbon, Fatima? Well, Lisbon is a very hilly city. Right. Uh, so you would definitely go and see the downtown, go and see the neighborhoods, do the walking tour of the neighborhoods, Bairro Alto, Alfama, take a feel of what Lisbon is all about. And then we have plenty of nice museums, really, um, so the greatest museums in the country you'd probably see oh, yes. in Lisbon. And Claudia, Fatima mentioned uh, Bairro Alto and Alfama and Baixa. What, what are these three neighborhoods? Describe them briefly. Well, Alfama is one of the oldest neighborhoods in Lisbon, is uh, nearby the castle area. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's nice to walk over there. And then Bairro Alto is a 16th century neighborhood. It's completely on the other side of the hill. Downtown area, Baixa area, is another neighborhood at the riverfront. So there's there's a valley along the river and then two hills flanking the valley. And there was a horrible earthquake in, what, 1755, 1755. that destroyed most of the city. So the, the valley, the Baisha, the main downtown, is a modern grid plan from after 1755. Correct. But the Alfama underneath the castle survived the earthquake for some reason. So that's where you get the old kind of quarters. In fact, I understand the Bairro Alto, the other va- uh, hill... It was kind of a planned city to help accommodate the workers that were making the ships. Is, is yes. there that dimension yes. to that side? There is. There, it was basically uh, all the sailors that were and people that were working on making the ships and the ropes, and um, that was the neighborhood of the workers. Okay, and they organized that to house the workers close to the shipyards. Yes. 
Now, you mentioned, Fatima, the south coast. That's the Algarve. And that's sort of, Spain has the Costa del Sol, Mm -hmm. and Portugal has the Algarve. And we have the Algarve. So in three hours, you can drive there from Lisbon on a beautiful freeway. Oh, yes. And when you have the Algarve, for a lot of Americans, they just fly straight to the Algarve because they're looking for some beach resort. Well, what are the options in the Algarve? What do you recommend? Well, the Algarve has, over the years, become very popular, and everyone wants to go down to the Algarve. But there are really, really beautiful fishing towns and beautiful beaches off the beaten track, Mm -hmm. which are very easy to find. If you are in Faro or in Tavira or in Portimão, you just go along the coast and you'll find these beautiful beaches. So the places you just mentioned were the resorts where people would have their timeshare condominiums and lots of uh, big tourism, but nearby are the smaller fishing villages. Yes. And Claudia... 500 years ago, when people thought if you sail that way, you'll fall off the end of a flat earth and there's dragons and everything, the very distant corner of Europe was Cape Sagres. Tell us about Cape Sagres. Well, in fact, Cape Sagres, there are two capes over there. One is Cape Sagres and the other one is St. Vincent Cape that has the name of the patron saint of Portugal. In Cape Sagres is the connection with uh, uh, the Harry the Navigator. So we have the school of the Henry the Navigator. So Henry the Navigator was leading Portugal and he he invested money in sending out these guys. Exactly. Who are the most famous two or three sailors? Well, Vasco da Gama, of course, we, we have to mention Vasco da Gama. I think we also to have to give credits, even if it was paid by Spain, but Magellan, of course. <laughs> so Magellan now. sailed around the world. Oh, yes. Vasco da Gama was the first guy to sail around Africa to get yes. to India. And then I also, there's another one, Cabral, that went to Brazil. So how is it that Latin America is divided with Brazil speaking Portuguese and everybody else speaking Spanish? Because part of the South America was discovered by the Portuguese and the other part by the Spanish, right? Okay, and yes. to this day, 500 years later, we have Portuguese and Spanish. Yes, you know, we have a treaty that was signed in 1494, that is the Tordesillas Treaty. And that treaty, Portugal and Spain, just divided the world in two. <laughs> what, what is the name of the treaty again? Tordesillas. Claudia da Costa is a lifelong resident of Lisbon. And Fatima Bougarin is from the historic town of Tomar. There are guides now with tips for a perfect week in Portugal on Travel with Rick Steves. Now, we've talked about the capital city, we've talked about the south coast, and then we can head north. And in the north, we have some very important sites to check out. Claudia, what would your top two stops north of Lisbon be? Well, I would say Coimbra, where you have uh, one of the oldest universities in Europe. And then Porto, of course. I love Porto because it's sort of the industrial, rough-edged little sister of Lisbon in a lot of ways. Yes, <laughs> yes it can be, but uh, also Porto is very known by the very beautiful river and, of course, the port wine. So that's the big part of tourism is the Douro River Valley that goes up from Porto. And then as a tourist and a traveler, how would you enjoy the port wine experience in the Douro River? What do you do? Well, I would recommend you to... Have a car, I think, is the best way to right. go around. And then you can visit the different wineries on the way, wine cellars on the way, and especially the little ones for the family farms. Okay, so we visit farms in the Douro Valley. We can go to Porto and visit the um, the lodges where they yes. age the port wine. And Porto is the uh, rough second city of Portugal that in so many ways is trendy now and got great restaurants and wonderful opportunity. Coimbra is sort of like the Oxford of Portugal with the great university. Fatima, you also mentioned Évora in your week in Portugal. Évora. Why Évora? 
Everak is south, just before you get to the Algarve, and it is in one of my favorite regions, the Alentejo. So Alentejo, that's like the Wild West, the rough cowboy country of Portugal. Almost. I would say that uh, it, it is the joke of the country because everyone has jokes on the people from the Alentejo, but it is really the hardworking people. They've had it rough all their life, and they are right now one of our biggest economies. They, it's where you find mm-hmm. our cork forests, very good cheese, very good bread, very good wine. It's the hottest region, and it's also the biggest region of Portugal. So, Claudia, Fatima said it's the butt of jokes. Do you have a favorite Alentejo joke? <laughs> well, you know, when we always talk about the Alentejo people, uh, we always say that they are slow. You know, they like to do siestas. It's the only part of Portugal that really the shops are closed uh, for the siesta time. So how slow are they? Well, I don't think they are really slow. I'm, I'm giving you an opening for a joke. They're so slow. <laughs> they're, I don't know. I don't remember any Didn't, joke about... I thought they celebrated the millennium in 2003. Wasn't okay, it could be. That was a joke a long time ago. Okay, so this is Travel Trick Steve's. We're insulting the people of Alentejo. No, oh, no wonderful. We're not. we're not. It's a wonderful place to go and visit. I love Evora, the main city of Alentejo. We're talking with Fatima Bougarin and Claudia Costa about Portugal. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Kirsten's on the line from Excelsior, Minnesota. Kirsten, thanks for calling in. Do you have a comment for Fatima or Claudia? I do. I have. We were in Portugal in August with our family, two boys, ages 12 and 14, and we just could not get over how hospitable the people were, and we just absolutely loved the culture and the people and the vibe, and I felt like it was still undiscovered, even though I know it's discovered, but it still felt like, you know, the hordes of people weren't there. Um, We did Lisbon, Coimbra, and then we went to Porto, and we went to Costa Nova, the little striped beach town near Porto. Yeah. And how did your your children, you have a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old, what was enjoyable for them? What did you enjoy as a parent uh, sharing with them? Well, they, my 14-year-old does all the trip planning. He picked Coimbra. They love Sintra. We got a, a tuk-tuk ride all the way up to the Pena Palace, <laughs> a very fast tuk-tuk ride, kind of scary. Um, but Sintra was incredible. It just was like Harry Potter land. I, it just was so magical. They liked the castle in Lisbon. They liked Tapas. They, we went to Belém for the Pastel de Nada. They just love, and they loved the language, and they loved the, the tiled plazas, just loved the architecture and the mosaics and Oh, it's, um, it sounds like yeah. a wonderful family experience. Claudia, uh, Kirsten's children really loved the palace at Sintra. They said it was like a fantasy. It is kind of like a fantasy. Tell us about the Pina Palace. Pina Palace is wonderful. It's on the top of the hill. It's not only the palace. Uh, it's also worth the visit, the gardens. It's almost incredible how a king in the 19th century decided to do a palace on the top of that hill because it's hard to go there. And this king was from the same generation or even the same family or something as Mad King Ludwig in Bavaria. Yes, and we know yes. the Neuschwanstein castle. And when we go to Sintra, outside of Lisbon, it's like the same sort of um, fantasy castle building. Exactly. I would say that. And then he also, he designed himself the palace. So he was pretty much inspired by those palaces in Baviera. So you have that uh, kind of feeling that that's, you are in Baviera. That's great. And, and Fatima, when you take groups around w- which have children, what, what advice would you give to a parent to let the kids have a good time? Well, thank you, Kirsten, because that was really nice. Yes, we are friendly and uh, there's a lot to do. 
Portugal is a very diverse country and pretty safe, but all our museums are also interactive, so they, they get to learn a lot about our history. We have a lot of green areas right now. And some beautiful street art. Oh, oh yes, and there's street art now. Kirsten, did you notice the street art in places like Lisbon and Porto? Oh, incredible, yeah. I, I just think it was magical for the kids. It's like kind of a step back in time, so ornate, colorful. Did you go to the Coach Museum out at Belém outside of Lisbon? No, we didn't. See, next time, it's uh, these royal coaches, you know, carriages oh. before the age of cars. And these horse-drawn carriages are just like works of art. And to go there, with, with, especially with kids, it would just turn their imagination wild. Kirsten, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Bye now. Paul from Kansas City has emailed us, and Paul writes, wanting to tour Portugal in early or late summer, starting north, likely in Porto or Lisbon, and then down to the Algarve, and perhaps over to southern Spain. I'd like to do all of this without a car if possible. Is there a good train service from north to south through Portugal? Claudia, what about the train service if you want to go from Porto to Lisbon and then down to the Algarve? It's very easy. You have uh, a great system called, well, it's like our bullet train. It's uh, really easy to go from Porto to Lisbon. It's about 2 hours and 45 minutes. Okay. And then you have another 2 hours and 45 minutes to go to Faro in the south of Portugal. And Faro is the big town in the middle of the Algarve. And from there, I would imagine there's bus connections east and west to every town along the Algarve. Yeah, it's very easy. So for Paul in Kansas City, you can certainly do it without a car. Uh, Deanna's calling in from Washington, D.C. Deanna, thanks for your call. Um, Yeah, I was calling to share my experience. A couple of summers ago, I took a trip to Spain and Portugal, and I really found Porto to be a really fascinating city, just so beautiful. And I'd second Kristen's comments about the people of Portugal being very warm, very friendly, very hospitable. A lot of people speak English, but they're also very supportive of people learning uh, Portuguese. So uh, I'm pleased to say that I, I learned a few words and enjoy that part of the interaction as well. Nice. Now, you were in Porto. What was a good memory of you in the big city of Porto? Uh, my favorite, uh, two favorites. The first was um, the Sao Bento train station because um, if you go inside, the walls are of the beautiful characteristic Portuguese tile with a blue painting, and it's just, it's really beautiful. And you can and read a lot I, of history into those uh, blue tiles. The whole hallway of the train station is covered with these blue tiles, and they tell a lot of beautiful history about the people and the culture of Portugal. And what was your other memory from Porto? My, my other favorite experience was visiting the Livraria Lelo, which is a bookstore, kind of quirky, really interesting um, architecture on the inside. And apparently it served as the inspiration for J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series and you know, after being in there, I, I definitely felt connections with uh, being in Hogwarts Castle. I could see the similarities. Nice. That's the Lello bookstore, L-E-L-L-O, and everybody in Porto knows about that. Did you go up the Douro River Valley? That's where people go to do some wine tasting and, and vineyard hopping. Oh, why, yes. And actually, thanks in part to your recommendation, I did spend a couple of days on the Douro, home-based in Pinhao, um, which is maybe about two to two and a half hour train ride from Porto. And from there, stayed at a place called the Vintage House, which was really beautiful and right on the river. Hmm. And took a couple tours of wineries. One I visited was smaller, more family run called Quinta de la Rosa. I mm-hmm. think it's actually in your guidebook. Quinta and, de la Rosa, um, yeah. These are, these are and, small uh, family run wineries. And it's, it's kind of like 
tasting wine in, in Germany or France or, or Italy. Uh, you get to see wonderful family wineries, and there's no castles around there, but you got these wonderful terraced hills, a beautiful river, and a lot of tradition. I mean, you really get to dig into it and, and actually see how the, the wine is, is made. It was a really wonderful experience, and it's just so much slower out there, and you really can slow down and, and almost hear your heartbeat, which was a nice break from being in Porto, which is a mid-sized city, and then prior to that, I had been in Barcelona. So the Doru Valley was a beautiful respite. Nice. Deanna, thanks so much for reporting on that in your call, and happy future travels. Thank you, Rick. Fatima Bougarin tells us why her hometown of Tomar, on the inland route between Lisbon and Porto, was a major focal point in Portugal's medieval history and is well worth a visit today. It's in an extra to this week's show. You can hear it online from the radio page of our website at ricksteves.com radio. And Fatima, I just love the Portuguese language, and when we go there, Portuguese people are, are eager to hear you speak a little bit of the language. When you take a group around Portugal, what four or five words do we have to know to be polite with the people we meet? Well, you would have to say bon dia. Bon dia. Good morning. Like buenos dias, but bon dia bon, Portuguese. Yes. And uh, you would have to say obrigado. Obrigado. Or obrigada. Now, what and does that mean? And this means thank you. But it's a gender word. So if you are a gentleman, you say obrigado. And if you're a lady, you say obrigada. Uh-oh, I've been saying the ladies' way. Okay, you <laughs> obrigado. say obrigado. Okay. And please would be por favor. I know that word. And what's what's goodbye? Adios. Like adios. 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 Yes, to God. Go with God. Yes. All right. Claudia and Fatima, I'd love to just finish off with your favorite, as a tour guide, your favorite intimate little experience to share with one of your guests in your country. Maybe a meal, maybe a drink, maybe a viewpoint, maybe an artistic experience. Fatima, what one experience would you want me to have to, to cap my Portuguese experience? Mm, I would say sardines, grilled sardines. That's Portugal for you. The smell of grilled sardines, maybe being grilled right there under laundry that is hanging uh, from the windows in Alfama. And that's perfect. That's, I love that's it. it. You've, you've nailed it there. Claudia, how about you? Well, it's very difficult to just put in the words, uh, you know, just one thing about Portugal. But uh, I'm from the city of Lisbon, so I recommend you the viewpoints. Mm. The viewpoints with the sunset, it's mm. really, really nice. Up on the castle, you see the river, you see the yeah, bridge. The, the river especially, it's really beautiful. And if you are, you know, in romantic, you know, <laughs> with someone, it's really important. Nice to share that with someone. Oh, I love it. I can think of three or four viewpoints <laughs> yeah, that I would yeah. <laughs> love to be there with my favorite travel partner. Claudia Costa, Fatima Bugarin, thank you so much for sharing with us a little bit about your beautiful country, Portugal. Thank you, Rick. Obrigada. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Special thanks to our colleagues at GBH Radio in Boston for a studio help this week. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku about your travel impressions. Details are at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. If you love Europe, too, this is 
four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.